I was involved in everything that the church could offer. The doors were open, we were there. My family was there. We were all, the lights were on, we were the ones shutting them off when it was time to go home. And all it is, and I'm not saying that working in the church is bad, please don't hear that. But all it did was leave me needing to do more, and needing to do more. And I was sitting in the library one day, and my daughter was doing a research project, and so I was tagging along, and I was sitting in this chair, and I remember like it was yesterday. Everyone had those little sort of like watershed moments, pinnacle moments. This is, this was my moment where I'm sitting in this chair and I'm just, just miserable. All right. I'm in ministry. I should say that too. I'm, I'm on stage every Sunday singing about how much Jesus loves me. And I'm not entirely sure I believe it. If I'm being honest with you. And I sit in this chair and I look over and I'm looking just for a book to read to kill some time. And I read this book. There's this white spine book in this whole sea of other books in this new release section. And it was this book called God Without Religion by a guy named Andrew Farley. If you haven't read it, read it. It changed your life. I read that book in that chair, about half of it. And what it told me was all of this ride that I had been on was worthless. All this striving, all this trying, all of this thinking I had to earn what Jesus had so freely given me, all of this putting myself under the law had produced in me death. Because I'm here to tell you right now, look it up in your Bible plan today, the law produces death. Amen. It produces sin. It's there, its purpose, the Bible tells us, is to arouse sin within you. Why that is, we'll have to talk about that later. But I'm here to tell you, if you're living here under that place of, of rules and regulations and things are pressing you down and you feel like you're never going to be good enough, uh, you, you won't. And until you get over the fact that you think you need to be good enough, Man, you're going to keep beating your head against that wall. But this is my question. How do we get to this place? And man, I'll tell you what. I dove into the New Testament, right? I dove into the epistles. I dove, Paul was, was my guy. Because he told me all about what it means to be a forgiven child of God. But then I go back to these words of Jesus, and I don't know what to do with them. Because why is Jesus, the Bible tells us, and I don't have this in your notes, but John 1.17 tells us that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen. So why was Jesus beating people up on the Sermon on the Mount with a whole bunch of law? There had to be a reason for it. So to understand, here's our first little bullet point. To understand the words of Jesus, we have to consider, number one, when he was born. Number two, what his mission was. And number three, how those words fit into his plan. Amen? Amen. So when he was born, what his mission was, and how those words fit. Why? Because if we don't, we'll lift a piece of text out. And we'll set it over here, and we'll build a theology over here. Amen? Amen. Creflo Dollar famously said a little while back that if you take the text out of the context, all you're left with is the con. You're going to get conned by the devil. If you think you can pick that piece of scripture up, set it over here, take it outside of its context, and say, well, the Bible says it must be true. Get my machete, get my melon ball. Let's go. <laughs> Seriously? That's brutal, right? I don't see anybody reaching for their melon baller, maybe for their neighbor, but this isn't say cut out your neighbor's eye. Right. And this is one you gotta do for you. I'm gonna bust out my machete and see who's into it. Let's go. Let's, let's follow Jesus for real. There must be something, right? But we'll take this not only as true, but I'm not saying it's not true. Again, don't hear that. We get to a dicey place. We start parsing the words of Jesus. Amen? And I take that seriously. We start thinking about, hey, what did he really mean? What did he really mean? And we get, in some, we get in some scary place. But here's the truth I want you to understand. Everything Jesus said was true. But not everything Jesus said was for you. Right. His audience is important. 
Who was he talking to? What was he doing there? Why did Jesus, who was grace personified, suddenly start teaching all this law? Well, the first part we're going to look at is this. Jesus was born under the Old Covenant. That's important. This is the neglected truth in the church today. We don't think about this. We don't talk about this. The fact of the matter is, Jesus was born under law. He was subject to the law. Therefore, sometimes he had to teach. Amen. Check it out. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the, when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent his son, born among us of a woman, born under the conditions of the law, so that he might redeem those of us who had been kidnapped by the law. Kidnapped by the law. Amen. Everybody have a, anyone who has an actual Bible, Bible, oh, can you hold it up real quick? You got a Bible? If you flip to the middle of your Bible and you find the place between Malachi and Matthew, there should be a little piece of paper there. I want you to tell me what it says. What does it say? The New Testament. The New Testament. All right? This is a literary device because I have, I have something you need to know. The New Testament doesn't start there. It doesn't start with Jesus in a manger. It doesn't start with the genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Genesis. It doesn't start with Jesus being born. So Jesus is not under the New Covenant. Guess what happens? What has to happen before the New Covenant is instituted? Just to die. Really, the, the New Testament would be different in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Someplace in there, there's got to be a piece of paper that says, okay, now, boom, we got New Testament. Because up to this point, we got Old Covenant. We got a whole bunch of stuff going on that's not the same. Hebrews 9, 16 through 17, if you don't believe me, says this. Like a will that takes effect when someone dies, the New Covenant was put into action at Jesus' death. His death yeah. marked the transition from the old plan to the new one, right. canceling the old obligations and accompanying sins. I'm going to stop there for one second. This is a part of my notes, but think about that for a second. It canceled not only the old obligations, it also canceled out sin. Yeah. Jesus' death on the cross did more for you than you may ever understand. It did more for you than you might ever really grasp. If you have a struggle with sin, we have a struggle with something that Jesus put to death over there. Amen? Amen? The Bible tells us we can have victory over that. I just felt like that was for somebody this morning. Cancel the old obligations, that would be the old requirements of the law, and accompanying sins. And summoning the heirs. Who's the heirs? You and me. To receive the eternal inheritance that was promised them. He brought together God and his people in this new way. Man, is that good. The New Testament, the new covenant, is this thing, right? That comes into play, and it puts to, it puts to rest finally. All of these old rules and all of this old stuff. And you guys, if, if you don't know who the Pharisees were, the Pharisees, there was a, there was a rise of, of, of legalism when Jesus was around. It was this, man, they, they built the temple and they were trying real hard to do things really well. And all of a sudden, man, there was this need to go and do more and to do it better and to do it better. And rather than 10 commandments, they weren't satisfied with 10. By the time they were done, there were well over 600 commandments that every, every Jew would have had to follow. How, how many of you think they felt kidnapped by the law? Their lives were completely regulated, subject to whatever the priest said. And the Pharisees weren't even priests. They were just guys running around wagging their fingers at folks. Telling them, well, you know, it's not quite that. It's a little bit more stringent than that. What about? And then they would go off and do whatever they felt like doing. It was 
unbelievable. But here's the thing. They didn't have the advantage that you and I have. We get to look back at all that stuff through the lens of the cross, right? We get to look at it all in the shadow of the cross and see how it was all leading up. Now, I'm here to tell you, the Israelites couldn't have seen that. Lots of them did. Lots of them didn't. I mean, it was made pretty plain. Their prophecy spoke about who Jesus was for quite a long time. But they were kidnapped by the law. They were subject to it. Has anybody ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? All right. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to wreck it for you right now. It's an old movie. By now, if you haven't seen it, that's your bad, okay? I'm not going to apologize anymore for this movie. But in the movie, there's this boy who can see dead people, right? He's like, I see dead people. And he's with Bruce Willis, and they're troking around, and they're having this. It's a really creepy movie, okay? It's weird. I only bring it up because at the very end of this movie, I'm watching this thing, and all of a sudden, the surprise ending happens. Bruce Willis is dead. <laughs> if you have never seen the movie, it's wrecked for you now. Because it's actually not that good a movie, aside from the fact that you go, wait a minute. Wait. And then, here's what happened. I immediately turned the desk off and turned it back on. Now i got to see this again. Because I missed something. Something was there that would have clued me in the fact that he was dead the whole time. And guess what? It's all over the place. Everywhere you look, you can't miss it. Man, this is what the Jews went through with Jesus. It was right there. They could go back and have their sixth sense moment. They'd go back to when he was born, and they go, oh, yeah, that was it. Oh, there was that prophecy. Oh, there was that one. Oh, my. He never saw, they were never in the same place. The same. Oh, my. And they'd go, and they'd go, and they'd go, and they'd see it. But because you are so enraptured in the story, you don't see the forest for the trees. You don't see what's going on. And you don't have the advantage that we have of looking back Amen. and saying, I know what the secret ending is. Jesus was about to change everything. If you don't understand how radically changed we are because of the cross, we need to go back and talk about the cross some more. Because the cross changed everything. It changed you. It changed the way we relate to God. It changed this world. It brought into, it ushered in the kingdom of God in a way that we still haven't fully realized how much it is yet. But I'm here to tell you, the cross changed everything. Amen? Amen. So that's when he was born. Let's look at the second thing. Why was he here? Jesus was on a rescue mission. We can go back to that first scripture I used. Go ahead, put it back on the screen. But a rescue mission, because look at Galatians 4 through 5, told us that he came to redeem those who were kidnapped by the law. So the, the word for redeem uh, is the Greek word, which I will now try to butcher. Exaggerazo. And take it from me, I'm a Greek scholar. Okay. Um, but I can look things up, so that's cool. Um, in the Greek, what it means is to buy up, to ransom, to rescue from loss. So here's Jesus. His mission is to rescue us. What do we need rescuing from? The old way. Our old sins. All those things that keep us down and keep us from pursuing who we are in Christ. But those things had to go away. Jesus had to redeem us. Luke 4, 18 through 19. This is so great because this is we could we could actually talk about this one as an outrageous thing Jesus said. But he's in the temple and he's reading. Okay, this was Jesus' custom. He comes into the temple and they hand him the book of Isaiah. 
And in Luke 4, 18 through 19, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. When he says, God's spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor. Sent me to announce pardon to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. To set the burden and battered free. And to announce this is God's year to act. And then what he said I didn't include was, this morning this has been fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> and if Jesus had a mic to drop, he would have dropped it. Because <laughs> they all went crazy. This is one of, the, one of the many, many, many times that when he was done with all this, they tried to kill him. Right. <laughs> now here's cool. They, they, I keep doing these sides because I think they're awesome. Nobody killed Jesus. You know that? Because they tried lots of times. This is a neat verse in the Bible, right, right, right after this one, where it says that they tried to kill him. They tried to push him to the edge of a cliff. And push him off the cliff. And Jesus just walked right through him. How do you just walk right through a mob? How do you just walk right through people who are intent on tearing you limb from limb and pushing your carcass off of a cliff? Oh, yeah, you're Jesus. And it's not your time. When it was his time, they didn't have to fight him. That's just an aside. Nobody killed Jesus. Jesus laid his life down for you. Amen? Nobody took, he, nobody took his life. But think about this for a second He's there to rescue us. He's there to save us. This is the, if we don't see this as his primary mission, then we miss everything else that he's trying to say. And we miss the reason he says to cut off your hand, God, dot your eye, and be perfect. There's a reason for that. And outside of his coming to rescue us, if we're not careful, we turn that little phrase into our own little brand of Phariseeism. Phariseeism? Phariseeism? You know what I'm saying. <laughs> Legalism. That's an easy one. We turn it into our own brand. We start going around. We don't anymore use that to judge ourselves. We start looking at the people next to us and going, I don't know why you got both eyes. <laughs> God, I don't know what you've been looking at. <laughs> Daniel, why you got both hands, brother? Uh, you know we would, wouldn't, wouldn't we? Because we do it now, all the time. Don't we love to just compare ourselves to folks? Look at them and go, mm-hmm. She got both eyes. Who could she say she is? <laughs> I they got both hands. I know this though. If we're not careful, we'll miss the context. And we use this as a reason to just beat the tar out of each other. Right. And man, I tell you what, Jesus did not come to give us a weapon to beat the tar out of each other with. Amen? Amen. It's not what he's here for. Luke 19, 9 through 10, Jesus said to him, this was Nicodemus, by the way. <laughs> it's a good story, too. Man, the Bible's good, right? Oh, Lord have mercy. This good stuff in here. He said, Today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. And here's the crux of it. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' primary mission. In another passage of Scripture, Jesus tells three stories back to back. And these are about, they call them the parable of the lost things, okay? There's a parable about a lost coin. Right. A woman had a coin, and she, she she left everything she had, and she found it to go find the coin. Right. Right? There's a parable of the lost sheep. Come There's on. 100 sheep. There's one go missing. Right. Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one. And then my favorite story in all of Scripture, the story of the prodigal son, where we have the son who goes wayward. And really, we could call this the story of the prodigal sons. But the word prodigal simply means wasteful. He didn't know. So here's a son who's... Not just a good son. Not just, I'm sorry, I think that back. He's not just not a good son, right? He's a bad son. He's a, he really is. This is a guy who went to his father and basically said, you know what, you're worth more to me dead than alive. Because it's, what he wanted was his inheritance. And he wanted it now. And he wanted pretty much the, the benefits of his father's death. 
while he was still living. And he takes it and he goes, y'all know the story, right? He goes off to the far country and he spends his money on whatever he does, and then he comes to his senses and he comes home. But my favorite part of that story, and it makes me cry every time I tell it, because I, the, the day I saw this was the day my relationship with God changed. The Bible says while the son was a long way off, his father saw him. Yeah, exactly. What did that tell you? What was the father doing? Probably every single day. I know it's a parable, but here's the story exposing to you God's heart for you, telling you how he feels about you as he paces the steps and the porch, waiting for his son, who he knows is coming home. Because doggone it, that's just how it's going to go. And he looks and he looks and he looks, and we have no indication of how long this took place. And there was time to have a famine, there was time to spend all the money. Who knows? It might have been years. And while he's a long way off, the Bible tells us the Father saw him. And there's all kinds. I love Jesus' parables because they're so simple and they're so complex. Right. And there's so much in this story. We could preach sermons on the story. Because the man picks up his robes and he runs down the street. Men didn't pick up their robes and run in the first century. This was not something that would have been prudent. It's not something that would have been appropriate. It would have been shameful and embarrassing for this man of means and wealth to suddenly lift his robes and go running down the freaking hill to find his son. But you know what? He did it. And he runs and he embraces his son while the son's still trying to get out the story he rehearsed to tell him what a bad son he is and how much he doesn't deserve and just shh. And he starts putting the ring on his finger. And he puts a robe on his back and he puts a sandal on his feet and he's immediately restored. There's immediate restoration. There's no need for apology. There's no need for explanations. There's no need. The repentance took place in the pig pen. When the Bible says it came to his sentence, his, 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 his senses, repentance simply means to change your mind. He changed his mind. Trust me. Things got bad. Things got ugly. His mind was changed. And when he came to his senses, he ran. Somebody this morning needs to hear that their father has been waiting. And has never once counted you not a son or a daughter. You may have been living outside of the privilege of living under the roof of your father. But you've never once in your life stopped being his child. And the second you want to come home back, the robe is waiting. The ring is waiting. The sandals are waiting. The fatted calf is on borrowed time. Because we're going to have a celebration. Amen? Amen. So that's just the... But Jesus is on a rescue mission. He could have said anything in those stories to explain what our process is for coming back to the Father. Now when the Son had paid his due recompense and come home and been grounded for three months and had washed the family car and had, you know, sufficiently groveled and pleaded, and he could have could have done any of that stuff and told us then, man, you come what? And we would have all probably bought it, right? Well, we, we deserve that. If I take my dad's money and run off and squander, I don't expect to just go, woo come on back, son. It's too good to be true. But guess what? It's true. Because Jesus could have said anything, and what he said in that moment was, he came back. Come on. He came back. And that's all that was required was him to just to realize that he never stopped being his son. Oh, I love that story. Man, I could preach, yeah, we got preach sermons on that story, but... We're going to end this up with a few things here. What did the words of Jesus accomplish then? How do they how do they push this mission forward? Because they seem at first glance to kind of be in stark contrast with what we just talked about. 
There's places in the Bible when, when Jesus expect, he just, man, all he does is extend grace to people. Right? They're they're caught in sin. They're they, they know they know things have gone not well. There's the woman at the well that he talks to who's been living with her current man and she's been divorced five times, and he's not there to judge her. Right? And there's the woman caught in adultery, and he says, I'm not here to accuse you. Matter of fact, Jesus says, I'm not your accuser. Moses will be your accuser. That's a whole other story altogether. But why then does he turn around and then do this? Because it's mysterious. Well, there's a reason for it. And the first reason is this. Through these words, Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Everybody knew they were full of it. Someone needed to call them out. But that was a dangerous thing to do. These men had power. And they could require anything they required. I don't think you guys, maybe some of y'all don't understand that, that if on the Sabbath, you could walk three quarters of a mile. That's how far you could walk. If somebody turned you away for walking more than that, you'd be arrested. And then taken to the temple and flogged and beaten, whatever they did to you. If you didn't give enough of your tithe, if you didn't um, properly observe the Sabbath, if you dared to work, if you dared to, if someone caught you with a bacon cheeseburger, you were toast. You were bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. But you were done. So this is the this is the place that Jesus finds himself in, and he somebody has to expose these people for the hypocrites that they are. And Jesus goes to a lot of trouble and puts himself in a lot of peril to say stuff like Matthew 23, 27 through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So by the way, he's not missing words anymore. This is not your kind of Jesus. This is Jesus with a big stick going. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and every un, everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So the first part of this was to say, listen, you guys who hold yourselves up, as being the paragons of truth and virtue. You're hypocrites. I have not seen one of you guys gather out. I haven't seen one of you guys cut your hand off. You're not perfect. You're not. You're not. You're not. But you would but you expect everyone around you to be. So I imagine that there were some people who got it who went, and there were a bunch of Pharisees who went, oh, darn it. Or something else. It exposed them for who they are. They were playing with the law. They were trifling with the law. They were messing around thinking they were good enough, but the fact of the matter is they really hadn't taken it as seriously as they should. They weren't walking around, you know, amputated and limping. Things were not that good. But the second thing it did was this. Through these words, Jesus put the impossibility of the law on full display. Because here's the problem. The Pharisees thought they could do it. They were wrong. If you're sitting here this morning and you think you can do it, can I be the first one to tell you, you're wrong. The law is impossible. It is not something to mess with. Because the Bible tells us later on that if we fall in one little part, we are guilty of breaking the whole thing. So unless you think you can hold up every single little jot and tittle of the law perfectly, man, it's time to give up on that thing. It is time to give up and embrace what Jesus did. The problem with going on a rescue mission is sometimes the people you're there to rescue don't realize they need rescuing. They think they're fine. And Jesus tells them right now that, you know what, this idea of self-improvement is a lie from the pit of hell. 
You are not capable. Matter of fact, not that you're not capable, it's just not your job. You and I are, are, are Holy Spirit indwelled people. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The job of the Holy Spirit is do all those things we all tried to do before. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to bring about Christ's likeness right. in us. And the second we think that we can fall back to the old ways doing ourselves, Paul calls us fools. He's like, what, what, what do you think? Those of you who, he says in, uh, I believe it's Ephesians or Galatians, one of those cool books. But basically he said, no, it's Galatians, that you've tried to finish out in the flesh what Jesus started in the spirit. Yeah. Amen. Why would we do that? Because it's easier sometimes to trust ourselves than it is to trust the Holy Spirit. I can tell you, you will fail every single time. Jesus told them, this is the impossible, these are the impossible standards. You thought the law put you here. Actually, a few verses before that, the whole point of Jesus' sermon was to say, well, here's the law as you saw it. Actually, this is the truth of the law up here. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. Yeah, I'm actually going to tell you, if you get mad at your brother, you pretty much already killed him. And it just got real quiet. <laughs> like it probably just got real quiet there. He said, I, you know, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I tell you, if you even look at a woman and have those thoughts, you've already done it. And a whole room of people went, oh, I'm toast. I'm in so much trouble. I did that this morning. I mean, you know, most of us can refrain from the physical act of murder. I'm hoping that most of you in this room have never committed murder. It's, but how many of you guys have gotten mad at somebody? I got mad at a guy yesterday. I honked my horn at him for about 35 seconds. I want to make sure he knew he cut me off. <laughs> now I want to follow him for a while. Make sure, like, hello, what's up? You took me. <laughs> right? Cut me off. He didn't put a gun to my head. My goodness. We get wrapped up on that weird stuff, don't we? All right. So under the law, I'm, I'm done. That was yesterday. I got the gall to stand here this morning and talk to you about Jesus tonight. I killed someone once. <laughs> <laughs> That's just crazy. I'm sure you don't stand alone. Oh, no, I'm, I'm in good company. I'm in a room full of murderers, all right? If that's the standard, right? If the standard is, you know, don't even think about it, well, then we're all in big trouble, all right? But the problem is Jesus, Jesus was telling us this. I'm convinced of it. He's telling us this to expose the impossibility of it. Yeah. You need to get to a place where you understand that you are someone in need of rescue. Yeah. You're someone who's been kidnapped by the law. Yeah. And you're someone who's been placed under a burden that was never yours to carry. Yeah. No. And you need release from that. Yeah. If you're here this morning, Jesus came because he said to give you life and have it more abundantly. If you're not experiencing abundant life, what are we doing wrong? Because I know lots of us aren't experiencing that life that Jesus promised us. And Jesus is no liar. So if we're not experiencing the joy and the peace of the Lord, there's a reason for that. And I'm convinced that it's because we put ourselves back under a yoke of slavery. We put ourselves back under these legal requirements that were never ours in the first place. And Jesus is telling us, would you just chill? Would you for once in your life just trust me? I got this thin thing handled. I, I took the nails in my hands and my feet to put to rest all of that. And here you are struggling against something I've already beat. No wonder you're tired. Right. No wonder you're tired. If, that, if there's one word I would use to describe most people I run into every day, myself included, how do you feel today? Tired. Yeah, I'm pretty good, but man, I'm tired. Yeah. Why are we so stinking tired? Come on. Yeah. Why? 
Is it a physical tired? Or are we spiritually exhausted from things being placed on us that were never ours to carry? Right. Right. Amen. Have you guys ever been involved in intervention? <laughs> How much fun is that? I've never had the privilege. I hope I never have the privilege, dear God. But I've seen a TV show. It was interesting. <laughs> you drag some poor unsuspecting schmuck into a room, maybe with the promise of birthday cake. Who knows? <laughs> like, hey, why are all my friends here? And they look around and it dawns on them. Oh, this is not going to end well. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they start getting that, right? But what's the problem with an addict? What's the first problem with an addict? They're in denial. They don't know. They're, they, they know, but they don't know. They don't, but they don't know. Can I tell you, we are addicted to law in the church. You can go into any church in America any day of the week, and you can get all kinds of messages about how you're not doing good enough, you're not trying hard enough, you're not serving enough, you're not giving enough, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough. And you will walk away and go, boy, that, whew, that preacher punched me in the face today. That was good. <laughs> what is that about? I stepped on my toes. I love when he kissed me right there. Woo! That's good stuff. Man, Jesus. Jesus came to give hope to the hopeless. He came to give hope to the hopeless, put a rope to the self-righteous. You want more rope to hang yourself with? I'm going to give you all you need. Here's Moses 2.0. I'm going to raise the stakes on you. You thought you were doing good. You're not doing good. You're messing with the law. You're trifling with it. You think you got it, but you're not. And they had to come to a place where they understood that they weren't doing well. Yeah, they refrained from committing homicides. Great. Good for you. Most of us have. But how's your anger? Yeah, not so good. Right? You've been, I've seen the leering looks around the, you know, the office. I'm going to get you your own personal ice cream scoop or something. Because something's going to have to change. But you think you're doing great. And so you carry yourself. And all that ever does is give you ammunition to look at the guy next to you. And say, well, I'm not, well, I'm not that guy at least. Right. And we get to roll up on folks and say, I'm not perfect. Mm-hmm. But I'm not you. Right? There's, there's, a, that, there's a verse in the Bible where that's what the Pharisees said. That, Thank God we're not like those guys. You know? And it's like, actually, you're worse. Because at least those guys know who they are. The sinner, right? The tax collector, the adulterer, the drug user. The, man, put your label on whoever you want to put them on. Most of them know who they are. They don't need you to convince them that they need Jesus. They know they need something. The problem with the rest of us is we think we're so high and mighty and good, we don't need nothing. That's right. And we'll look Jesus square in the face and say, no, we're good, thanks. Mm-hmm. And he'll say, all right, let me show you something about your standards you think you're holding yourself to. You, you've heard it said, and we'll all go, oh, jeez. Lord, we're in trouble. <laughs> the last thing he did, and I'll touch on this a little bit, though, and that last fill in the blank is Jesus revealed through these words their desperate need for a Savior. They desperately needed a Savior. And here's the thing. Most of these people knew that. They were waiting for a Savior. Here's maybe the bigger problem is that they didn't know what they needed saving from. They had pictured Jesus as a military leader. Not him per se, but whoever Messiah was going to be. Understand that that Israel is under the yoke of the Roman Empire. They are oppressed. They're beaten. They're occupied. And they have imagined what Messiah would look like. And he's going to be a guy carrying a double-edged sword in one hand and maybe some nunchucks in the other. And he's coming to whoop some Roman tail because he's taking it all back, baby. Right. And we're going to put ourselves right back in our 
our, our, our God-given place of being in charge. And how disappointed were they right. when they finally understand that Jesus didn't come to restore Israel. Jesus came to restore humanity. Jesus didn't come for a nation. He came to make us all a nation. Come on. To make us all kings and priests. That's right. To make us all children and heirs according to the promise. Jesus, Jesus' mission was so much bigger than what they could have imagined. But they needed to understand that they needed that kind of saving. And through this sort of killer sermon, Jesus exposes for all the world to see, man, you need me. Right. More than you think you know, you need me. Matthew 5.20 For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the Come teachers on. of the law, you will not certainly enter the kingdom Come of God. On. How in the world is that possible? That somebody who is sitting in the government, who's a tax collector, or whatever they are, that their righteousness would surpass that of the Pharisees. I'm going to answer my question with this. The righteousness that you are given far surpasses any righteousness you could earn. The, the righteousness that is your gift, that is your birthright, that is who you are in Christ, is so much better than any righteousness you think you could earn. Look at Romans 8, 1 through 4, because it starts like this. So there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was, was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Amen? Second Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How good is that? How good is that? For what the law was unable to do because it was weak and ineffective Jesus did for us. So here we are. We have a choice today to stand over here in the place of Moses and we can lift Moses up and we can talk about how good he is or we can move over to talking about how good Jesus is. Amen. We can move over to talking about how good it is to be free from this old system. I don't know about you. I'm not going back. Amen. Right? The, the ships have been burned. I'm not, I'm not getting back. I'm going to move forward. I'm not going to put myself under a yoke of slavery anymore. And neither should you. So this morning, if you, if you hear nothing else, understand that these words of Jesus were spoken to set you free. Freedom. It is for freedom that he set us free. Amen? You guys bow your head and close your eyes for one second. If there's anybody here today, I want to make a quiet moment because it starts with recognizing that we need Jesus. And it starts with just, just making a decision to trust him this morning. So if you are here this morning and you want to put your life in the hands of Christ Jesus, would you just raise your hand, make eye contact, amen. That's awesome. Anybody else? Come on to the family. Jesus welcoming you with open arms this morning, amen. Good, good. The beautiful thing is it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. There's no way to earn what, what, what I'm talking about this morning. There's no way to, to buy into it. It's just simply a matter of trusting him. Amen? All right. We're going we're gonna to say a quick prayer. And uh, this prayer is, is 
nothing special, nothing magical, the words themselves are just words. You've already, if you've raised your hand this morning, you've already said yes to Jesus as far as, as far as he's concerned, you are heaven ready today. But if you just join with me, church, and say this prayer, say, dear Jesus, I thank you that you went to the cross to purchase my salvation. I thank you that because of your death, your burial, and your resurrection, I can be free. Father, work in me, work through me. I make you Lord of my life. Thank you for doing it. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody give him a clap for him.
financials to put into everybody's hands and we'll give an update on how things are going and um, I've actually got an extra set here if anybody needs an extra set. And who has them? Who has all the, the stack of them here to get these out to everybody? Where's Kim? Kim has them. Anybody find my assistant? <laughs> 
thank y'all for giving me the uh, the freedom to go over and have fun with the kids. So we had a blast this morning. I hope they got something out of it. I had a really good time. So I always uh, I like to do that a couple of times a year. Anyways, me and Vanessa, we're the only ones with financials, aren't we? There we are. All right. If, uh, if you're new with us, we do these quarterly. Um, we do a big annual review at the end of January, like most churches do. Um, but we like to try to keep everybody up to date uh, on a quarterly basis. And so um, that's the way we roll um, for now. Not necessarily we always do it that way, but it works well for now. Um, the uh, first sheet that you're going to see is the statement of activities. If you're a business person, you'll know this as in, <coughs> income and expense. And But in the nonprofit world, which is where churches fit, um, ours is called the statement of activities. The second page is the statement of financial position, and which would also be known as the balance sheet in the business world. Um, obviously, the income categories, we don't have just a whole lot of income categories. And uh, we have, obviously, the first one is our tithes and offerings, are just the, our, the normal operational giving uh, for the first quarter, which is a little over $63,000, which turns into about $21,000 a month. Um, we have uh, a building fund, which we began in uh, very end of January, which we had never had before, which at the close of March uh, had received $45,000 uh, in that. And then designated funds, designated funds are things like camp fees and those kinds of things, things people cannot receive tax-deductible um, things from the IRS for. And uh, so we have to keep those in a separate category. And then fundraising, um, obviously, is fundraising. As you drop down, we have a fairly simple uh, chart of accounts um, that just run through here. Um, if you kind of notice uh, some of our bigger expenses. We have church expense, which is just our, the normal operational stuff goes in there. Um, the uh, um, You drop down and you have a housing allowance as a licensed minister. Uh, it still exists. Um, the IRS still allows. It was, this last year was contested, um, but it was upheld that ministers are allowed to have a housing allowance, which that part is removed it's not taxable, and so I have declared a housing allowance because I'm the only one on staff that this applies to, and so I, uh, there's a, a guideline and a chart you have to do to figure out housing allowance, and so what that is is that's, that's not that the church pays for my housing expenses. That's what on my check is broken between salary and housing allowance. So I just get a check, and I, I pay my own expenses, but it's called... Um, as we roll down, you obviously see our rental factor is spent uh, 15.6, and so a little over $5,000 a month on leases. That's Tinseltown. Uh, was the youth building? We don't have a. Um, the place we're in now is free, uh, thanks to Glen Meadows. They're very 
uh, benevolent with their campus on College Hill, uh, right there close to Unidad Park, Charleston Park 2400. They've allowed us to use that on Wednesday nights, and we've been in there twice the last two Wednesdays. Um, and then our office rental uh, falls inside that as well. Um, the uh, salaries ministers, that would fall into my salary. So to understand, you kind of combine the two, which obviously not looking at a year at a glance, it's kind of hard to get the whole thing. Um, we look at our missions. We give at least 10% off the top to missions. We have from day one. And so uh, we cut checks every Monday. So, and you're like, well, that's not, that's just a little over 10% above our time. We are allowed to do that on our discretionary income. We're not allowed to reallocate any other income. So when people give towards building fund, we can't say, well, 90% of that is going to the building and 10% of that is going towards our missions. That's illegal. And so when you raise money for something specific, it has to go to that specific thing. If you request money specifically. Now, if someone just comes up and says, I want to give this money because um, our projector is not good and I want to buy a new projector. Well, they've technically designated that money, but we didn't ask for it. And so at that point, it's between us and the donor if we actually do that. If we weren't going to, we would say, hey, we're fine with our projector, and you can either have your money back or whatnot. But somebody can't just control their giving by saying, here, spend it on this only. That's not allowed either. But if we request money, then we and say we're going to, and somebody responds to that request, we have to, by law, allocate it towards that. So our missions giving is simply out of our operational giving, which you can see is a little north of 10% of that for the year. Then we look down into uh, camps, and um, that uh, we spent some money on that. Um, contract labor, um, that falls with some of our musicians, our campus pastor in Big Lake for now is not salaried, it's still paid on a weekly deal. That falls into that. Our worship leader in Big Lake falls into that. Those things fall into that, um, into that area. And then wages and, and salaries is uh, uh, our um, full-time assistant and a uh, part-time assistant. And then you get down and you see where totals were. And then the second page is our balance sheet, um, the cash in the bank. That's just our normal operational uh, every day in and out. Account, and then we have a we have our savings account. We set aside money every off of every regular offering towards some, a little bit towards benevolence. So that goes up and down. So that when people ask and there's somebody in need within our church, then that is set aside for us to be able to respond to that. We believe it's a big deal that church should be able to respond to a legitimate need without us having to go to everybody. And so we set that down, and, and we. We're kind of at the point now, we've actually had it higher than this, and we're now at the point our church is to the size it is. We get a lot more requests, and we don't, we're not really getting ahead. It's about a watch. What, what we set aside for benevolence in a year gets used for benevolence inside of a year. And, uh, so that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't grow, and we're not necessarily trying to grow it, but if nobody needs anything, well, we just set it aside on a weekly basis. 
And then our general savings, that's money that we have saved up. Um, and then the uh, building fund is the uh, monies that have come into that. You'll notice it's a little bit less than what we have um, brought in with the building fund, and that's because there's already been some expenses towards the building out of um, When it's all said and done, our cash position at this snapshot was a little over $80,000. And then the rest of the stuff is our fixed assets. So that's where we sit at the end of this um, this last quarter. Um, the big question on everybody's mind is is the building. And so, like, how are we progressing on the building? Um, well, we are progressing. And um, if you had looked and you followed along with the with our offering on Symbol, we were our desire was to be able to raise the money from within our community and our church fellowship and directly outside of that. And um, so for whatever reason, we've talked to some fairly significant uh, people we have relationship with outside the church that have some deep investment pockets. And obviously, we're all aware that our economic environment has tightened up here with the oil going back. So there's a lot of people who have been aggressively investing because money was coming in faster than they knew what to do with it. That they have those business owners have pulled back and in a wise move, keeping a cash reserve readily available. And money they put towards us would be locked up for five years. And so things have just shifted. Um, we began moving towards this building out of a leading from the, the Holy Spirit. We just began to move towards it. It was one of those things. It didn't really make sense financially. In fact, it never made sense financially until we ran into symbol. And then through that offering, we were like, okay, this actually makes financial sense. But um, from a vision sense, it was simply it was simply where things need to go. And um, so God has just kept opening doors. Uh, right now, where we sit. Um, obviously, if you refreshed that, uh, we're not there with symbol. Um, our closing date uh, is coming up in uh, about a month, and there is a uh, an, an investor who has uh, we've talked to who is willing to be able to to fund the whole thing not through symbol and be willing to give us a, a, a longer amortization than a standard bank would be willing to do and puts us in a place where we're able to, to get into the building. We're honestly in a place of negotiating a better rate is what we're doing. And so um, the uh, so that that is where that sits. And if we get a breakthrough on that, then I will uh, keep you up to date on that. So we honestly, we still need your prayer. It's very much there. God's open the different doors. Um, there's the, the warehouse space. The guy that's interested in that and bringing $300,000 to the table on that is still very much involved. Um, the engineer is still doing all of the plans for free. All of those different things are coming in. I should be going to the city this week with stamped plans and all of that piece. We're still moving forward. So um, if you could just keep that in prayer and keep our uh, eldership team in prayer, uh, that's that's where we sit. And so right now for our assignment uh, to be able to continue to move, move forward, then we need and we need a facilities answer of some kind. This has been an incredible blessing for us. And 
but we, we for what the time limit and what they've allocated to us, we've just topped it out, and we're we're grateful for that. And uh, God has moved this forward. We've been in con we've been in conversations with that building for uh, um, for about two years, and we're now sitting that the deal that's on the table is when it, when all the dust settles, it's. It's the deal we presented to the owners to begin with, just in a weird backdoor way. It's just, okay, we didn't anticipate this coming in this angle. and uh, But it's it's what we offered. The problem is, is Symbol's a lot better. Symbol saved us about two grand a month. We wouldn't want to put two grand a month towards a different use than the other. But also, when it's all said, um, for us on a standard deal to be able to lease the space we would need would cost us a bare minimum. We would need 20,000 square feet would cost us a bare minimum of 50 cents a foot to lease and that's $10,000 a month plus insurance, property taxes, all of these different things and for, um, for about $6,000 a month everything settled um, that we'll be able to do that, we'll be able to do that building and own it. And it's just it's just a much 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 better option. So that's where we sit. So I'm gonna pray. Um, if anybody has any questions, then we'll be able I'll be able to be happy to answer those. Um, uh, Steve Lawhone is here and able to answer those as well. And Burrito, I'm sure Mike is rolling something up. He'll be able to answer those. Um, let's just pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your heart for people. And Lord, that's why that's why Celebration Church exists. Father, we just want to help connect people with the amazing grace that is so available in you. It changes everything. And Lord, we thank you for the blessings. And we thank you, Lord, for carrying us this far. And we know that unless you're the one that built the house, we labor pointlessly. And we have, no, we have no desire to spin our wills for no reason. Lord, so we just choose to walk in you. We choose to walk with you, trust you, and watch you be God. And we're so thankful for that. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, thank you all for your patience this morning. And uh, anybody have any questions?